We don't have a text that we're working from this afternoon, but we'll read several scriptures as we go along. I want to give what is kind of a second appendix to our studies in Romans 13 there concerning the responsibility of believers to civil government. And we want to consider in this message the subject of liberty of conscience. We mentioned this in one or two of the messages as we were going through those first seven verses in Romans 13. Liberty of conscience, also known as soul liberty. So to begin with, we should try to simply define our terms. First of all, what is conscience? And a good theological dictionary gives this simple definition for conscience. It is the faculty of discerning between right and wrong according to the law written on the heart. And reference is made to Romans chapter 2 that uses that language about the law written on our heart and the conscience accusing or excusing either either finding you guilty or finding you not guilty. Uh, You're in the right, you're in the wrong. This is conscience. It has been a, a term of long standing, and I don't know who originated this. I don't know who to give credit to for it, but it has been said uh, for many years, conscience is God's deputy in the soul. He's like an officer from God built in us that acts like God's deputy in our soul to discern between right and wrong. Because of our fallenness, our conscience is not a perfect guide, but it is generally a good guide. It is, conscience is an inner witness that is constantly making moral evaluations about attitudes and actions then what is liberty of conscience? Well, liberty of conscience is the freedom to choose a belief or a course of action according to inward convictions or according to conscience. The freedom to choose what to believe and what to practice according to the inward convictions of conscience. Or to put it more simply, liberty of conscience is that no one but God can tell you what to believe. No man can tell you what to believe. Only God in heaven occupies that position of authority. And each one must be bound in his own conscience by God, 
concerning what to believe and what to do, doctrine and practice. So at issue is the power of choice in spiritual things. Should individuals in a society be allowed to choose what to believe and what to practice as far as religion is concerned? Now, this is one of those things that on the surface there's a simplicity about it, but the, the deeper you dig, the more uh, complex it becomes. Certainly God demands the total allegiance of every rational creature, angels and men. God demands and deserves our total allegiance. He states in the first commandment to have no other gods before him, no other gods in his sight or before his face. In other words, God declares that our conscience is to be bound to him and bound by him. But the question that we're considering today is, can any man bind the conscience of another man? The the issue is not, Does God bind our conscience? Does God have the right to bind our conscience? Yes, because he's God, he does. But does anyone else have that right? And the answer is no. No man has the right to bind the conscience of another man. Each soul must be convinced inwardly. In a sacral society, there is no liberty of conscience. What you believe is determined by your neighbors or by the authorities over you. There is no power of choice. There is no soul liberty. Rather, in a sacral society... The message is believe this or else. And the or else may be uh, anything from being forced to relocate and live somewhere else, go to some other country or, or island, um, or perhaps even die. There's no room in the society or no room in a sacral society for those who do not embrace the preferred religion or the required religion. There's no option of, well, there's no options, period. But there's no option of remaining in the society or in that geographical region if you don't 
conform at least outwardly to the religious requirements. Now, all throughout human history, I think it's safe to say that every culture, or at least everyone that I know anything about, has operated according to this structure. In ancient Egypt, you worshipped Pharaoh's gods. In Assyria, you worshipped Assyria's gods. Same with Babylon and Rome and so on. The tribes in the Americas, the indigenous or Indian tribes here operated in the same way. If you are in the culture and in the society, your belief system is already decided for you. You participate at least outwardly in the uh, religious customs, celebrations, and so on. If it was not from peer pressure from your neighbors, it was from more severe pressure from civil government to conform. And so there is no power of choice. your, Your decision is is made for you. Kind of reminds me of what Henry Ford said when people asked him uh, what, or if they could have a a car, you know, painted this color or that color. And he said famously, you can have any color car you want as long as it's black. In other words, you're free to choose as long as you make the right choice. Well, that's the way a sacral society operates. And honestly, that is what existed in Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel was a sacral society. To be a citizen of Israel meant that you at least outwardly were a worshiper of Jehovah. And of course, we look at that arrangement differently than we look at Egypt or Babylon or any of those that I mentioned because this was a matter of the true and living God, the God who revealed himself through his word and through his prophets, <clears throat> the one who appeared at Mount Sinai and so on. But there was only very limited room at best for strangers in the land of Israel who did not worship Jehovah. How long they would be allowed to remain uh, is not really clear. But if certainly if you were going to be recognized as not just someone passing through, but someone who is here to stay, someone who's a citizen, <coughs> if you were a man, you had to be circumcised, and you had, and man or woman, you had to participate in the the Sabbath day, the feasts, uh, and so on. There was no real choice. I'm thinking of uh, the scene there in the book of Ruth, 
where Naomi convinces Orpah to go back to Moab and to remain with her people and her gods. Ruth, as you recall, insisted on going with Naomi into Israel. And she says, I'm going to adopt your God. Your God will be my God. That was pretty much a requirement. If Orpah had come to Israel and continued to worship Moabite gods, that would not have worked. She would either have to convert or go back to Moab. The New Testament gives us a different perspective on this. Christianity enters the picture as an underdog, we might say, as an outlier, as in hostile territory, where the the prevailing sacral society was unwelcoming. And that was true both with regard to Israel as a nation and, in a broader scope, it was true with regard to Rome. And throughout the book of Acts, we see both the Jewish authorities coming down against the Christians. Then we see the Roman authorities coming down against the Christians. And we see that throughout church history in various ways and and times. Christianity entered the picture operating, we might say, almost in a clandestine way, in the midst of these sacral societies. And yet, the Lord Jesus didn't hide anything. It, It was not clandestine in that sense. It was out in the open. He could say to Pontius Pilate, I've taught openly in the temple. But we see no plans for the Christians to set up their own sacral society when their numbers became enough to do so. What we see in the New Testament is really a radical concept of dual citizenship. When Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, that that was a seismic shift in, in world philosophy, we might say. Paul could say, in Acts 16 and elsewhere, I'm a Roman citizen, and therefore you can't tie me up and and beat me to death. On the other hand, he could say, our citizenship is in heaven. There's this dual citizenship that, that a believer in Christ possesses. And... The latter citizenship, the heavenly citizenship, is, of course, the dominant one and the permanent one. This earthly citizenship is passing. 
So much so that Christians are to think of themselves as strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Sojourners, though we have citizenship here, it's, it's not the same as ours in heaven. The civil authorities in the first century uh, were not comfortable with this arrangement. It, it went against everything that the Jews were accustomed to. It went against everything that the Romans were accustomed to. For one God to demand full allegiance, the, the, the Romans had no concept of that. And, of course, the Jews didn't believe in Jesus Christ as God in the flesh. And so we see these charges brought up. Just listen as I read some of these. This is what Jesus was accused of. They began to accuse him before Pilate saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. He's unpatriotic. Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. And these, again, it's so fascinating. These Jews who, who hated the, the bondage under Rome would pretend otherwise in order to get a, a, a conviction and a condemnation by Pontius Pilate against Jesus. He's forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. That was a bold-faced lie. He had said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But they said, oh, he forbids paying tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Again, in John chapter 19, it says, From henceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar, the Jewish people, in order to, to condemn Christ or have the Romans condemn him, make these outrageous claims that Jesus is somehow in rivalry with Caesar. And nothing could have been further from the truth. Jesus said, pay the taxes Now, certainly Jesus was a rival to Caesar as far as the binding of the conscience is concerned. Caesar was way out of his bounds when he demanded the worship of his citizens. And, of course, you know church history, how that that became such a violent, deadly issue for Christians in the Roman Empire. They could not render to Caesar that worship, that allegiance, that loyalty that belongs only to the Lord Jesus Christ. You recall uh, in the book of Acts, the civil authorities were still opposing this religion of Jesus of Nazareth and opposing it on various grounds and various levels. But in the book of Acts chapter 16, when uh, 
Paul is in Philippi. The accusation was that these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Being Romans. We are citizens of Rome. We are under the Roman, or part of the Roman Empire, and so we worship at the shrine of Caesar. Similarly, in the next chapter, uh, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. Later on, in, when Paul is on trial, <clears throat> he answered for himself and said, Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. Paul could say with a clear conscience that the accusations of being a danger to society and dangerous to the nation or trying to tear down the nation or tear down the Roman Empire. These were all false accusations. Well, this was the environment in which the early church began. This is the environment in which the church has continued And this is what we are to expect. This is the environment that we are to expect until Jesus comes again. And some have tried to make a sacral society in which Christianity is the official or even required religion. And if you know anything about the history of Roman Catholicism, you know the the disaster that that has brought. We are to expect a hostile environment that the Bible calls this world or the world. Jesus declared to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus did not say to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is this world. I'm a king and this all belongs to me. Even though as creator... He could say that as mediator. He could have said that, but he doesn't say it. He doesn't say, my kingdom is this world, or or, we're going to work to get to the point where my kingdom is this world. No, it's, it's the opposite. My kingdom is not of this world. In his priestly prayer, he leaves his disciples in the world. 
and prays to the Father, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil, because the world is full of evil. Paul tells the Galatians that we are saved or delivered from this present evil world. But we don't get any indication that this present evil world considered in itself, will ever cease to be what it is, evil. We are to be saved from this crooked generation. We are light in a dark world. As Paul says to the Philippians, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, ye are the light of the world. Now one passage that I would ask you to turn to with me is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll read at verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. He says, In this world, there are fornicators, covetous, extortioners, and idolaters. And that has always been the case since the fall of man. It continues to be the case, and it will always be the case. But So Paul clarifies, But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother... Be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. He says, the only way to avoid ungodly people in this world is to leave the world. You're never going to convert the world. The world is always going to be the world. We're saved out of the world, saved from the world. However, the guidelines for Christ's assembly are different from those for society in general around us. The church is to maintain discipline within, with regard to its own membership. And Paul explains that in so many terms in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? In other words, those that are out in the world who are fornicators and extortioners and so on, he says, I have nothing to do with judging them. But he says, we do have something to do with judging those that are within. 
do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. It's all in the context of this case, very sad case of of gross immorality that was going on there within the membership of the church at Corinth. And Paul says the church has authority to discipline over its membership, but not over those outside. That's the distinction between those that are within, those that are without, those who are insiders, those who are outsiders. And certainly there is biblical basis and New Testament basis to expose the sins in society around us. But we have no adjudicating authority over them. We can warn them and we can urge them to repent. But we have no disciplinary authority over them. This passage makes that clear. And then he goes right into this matter of earthly judges in the next verse. In chapter 6, verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Earthly judges are assumed to be unjust. He uses that word here, unjust. And Jesus used that term when he, in Luke 18 when he talks about the unjust judge. Earthly judges have always been corrupt. Always will be. Unless God intervenes and saves them. And yet, it, it might appear at first glance, well then, Christianity has no power. It's a powerless uh, religion because it doesn't have the, the power of the sword of the state behind it to enforce it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christianity is the most powerful religion. Even in the first century, People said that the Christian faith had turned the world upside down, had changed the course of human history. Not with the power of the sword, but by the power of a message. A message blessed by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, In the hearts of men. This is wherein our power lies. And I've tried to put things in the best order I can, but I'll insert here something that Peter says about elders in churches he says um, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof not by constraint but willingly not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind then he says neither as being lords over God's heritage but being examples to the flock 
he says to the elders, you're not a Lord. You're not a master. A pastor is not a king in his church. But rather, he says, you lead by example. But being examples to the flock. And I'm reading this passage to say this. If elders are not lords over the church, how much less are elders lords over broader society? That's not the job description. That's not the jurisdiction. And as our culture deteriorates rapidly before our eyes, some pastors have begun calling themselves city elders. Well, a part of me wishes them well. But as I look at the New Testament, I really don't see any basis for such a position or such a self-declared rule. Now, if they wish to run for office in our current system and if God honors those efforts and they win an office and are able to exert Christian influence in that office, praise God. That's a good thing. But realistically, and I've seen this, and you have too, probably, they'll be voted out next time around. The people will realize this isn't the kind of leadership that we want. Truth is usually in the minority in this world, Mr. Spurgeon once said. And biblical history and church history confirms that. And though we've not said much about this, perhaps we should have. uh, Christians acting as individuals... And salt and light, wherever providentially God places them, that is certainly what we should be and what we should desire and and pray for. As far as churches acting corporately, our mission is a gospel-focused mission. It's not a social gospel. The social work is done by individual Christians at large. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives various examples of that. and I probably should have given some quotations from him here on that. Well, let me hasten on here. Liberty of conscience. The gospel comes to man... In the context of liberty of conscience. In the context of the power of choice. Every time that the, the, the command is given, repent and believe. An underlying assumption is liberty of conscience. I can't make you repent. I can't make you believe. Now, God can, but I can't. No man can. But I urge you, 
and I would persuade you and convince you and give you every argument at my arsenal to persuade you to repent and believe. Paul says, we persuade men. And that concept of persuasion is what we find again and again uh, in the book of Acts. Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. He couldn't make them believe. He couldn't be a lord over their conscience. But he could give them the arguments and the truth in the prayerful hope that the Spirit of God would apply that inwardly to the conscience and turn those hearts. And that's what happened, thank God. And that's what continues to happen to this day. That's what happened to you and me if you're a Christian. This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. He's going against our sacral society. Uh, Paul, later on here in Acts, is before Agrippa. And Agrippa says to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul couldn't hold a sword to Agrippa's throat and say, Now, you become a Christian or else. No, his only power were rational arguments from the word of God. And Agrippa, to some degree, evidently, came under some conviction by what he heard Paul say. We read that Paul's manner was to go into the synagogues and reason and uh, open and allege and so forth. He himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and so on. Uh, You're familiar with these passages, I think. He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment before Felix. Felix trembled. Our sword is the word of God. And so liberty of conscience is developed in the New Testament and it is assumed in gospel preaching. Paul speaks of appealing to the consciences of others. He can't be a lord over them, but he makes an appeal to them. That's the stance. He says, By manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. He speaks of having maintained a clear conscience before God. And of course, that didn't sit well with the the Jewish court. 
one more thing here. The Within the church, there is some measure of liberty of conscience or liberty of conscience in regard to some things. And I would just remind you of Romans 14, 5. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Paul says there's liberty of conscience. There's soul liberty in matters like this. We're not at liberty to believe any God. We want to believe in the church. See, there's church is a voluntary organization. And those who submit themselves to it bind themselves to the God that we worship, the God of Holy Scripture. And yet in some of these other matters, there is some liberty of conscience. Peter tells us we must be prepared to suffer rather than to violate our conscience. Let me just read that real quickly here once again. This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully or suffering unjustly, and he says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Well, perhaps a whole other study would be to look at church history and see how many of our Baptist forefathers suffered at the hands of sacral societies rather than to violate their conscience. And that happened even in colonial America, And there were some men who were, I believe, part of the Westminster Assembly who wrote fiercely against liberty of conscience. They, I don't think they ever understood what we were really talking about. We're not saying that God can't bind the conscience. We're saying that no man can bind the conscience. So let me... Move to one last passage here. We, we have been in Romans, and you recall that the civil magistrate has the sword given to him by God, according to Romans 13, 4, to revenge or, or to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. The sword of Romans 13.4 is not for binding consciences. It is for punishing evildoers. Civil rulers have no jurisdiction over the conscience. It is often said, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Well, that's very true in the subject we're talking about today. Someone may be forced into a religious ritual without embracing what that ritual represents Within. And as I said, there's complexity to this 
subject. And I think at least something of a general rule of thumb is that civil rulers should enforce the second table of the law, but not the first. The first table has to do with our relationship to God. The second table has to do with our relationship to our fellow man. And I say that's kind of a general rule, but even that division has its difficulties, and I'll not even take time to go into any of that. But let me move on then. In a way, the question comes down to this. Should people be allowed to worship a false god? Or should people be allowed to worship no god? As far as church is concerned, (laughs) the answer is no. Uh, As far as the membership of a New Testament church is concerned, no. You're not allowed to worship a false god. But in society, generally, yes. Otherwise, there are no objects for evangelism. Who needs to be saved if the law is everyone must be a Christian? Only Christians can live in this city or in this state or in this country well that brings a whole other set of problems that church history informs us of So we say, yes, people should be allowed to worship a false god in society. I would make this qualification. As long as their worship does not violate the second table of God's commands. In other words, if they say, our worship of Allah requires us to kill anyone who is not a Muslim, then they have gone beyond liberty of conscience to actually be um, death to liberty of conscience. They're setting up their own sacral society once again or, or making an effort to. The New Testament model is not to outlaw competing religions but to win the hearts of those who are worshiping false gods by presenting the biblical gospel with its convincing arguments, blessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christianity does not depend on favorable governments to exist. Christianity does not depend on a favorable government to prosper. We depend on the power of the truth to persuade consciences. And so that brings me then just to these simple applications. 
Let us all be evangelists. Let us spread the gospel. That's the only hope for any culture or society. Let us be salt and light in this world for the glory of God. Let your light shine before men. Let us pray for our civil rulers as we're instructed to do that they might rule in such a way that is conducive to a quiet, peaceable, godly, honest life. And I know that we are praying for that more now than ever. But let us pray also for the truth of the gospel to be blessed by God. Let us pray that the gospel would be blessed by its author with His power to change the hearts of those to whom it comes. And let's pray for a spiritual awakening and revival.